title's message is The Awesome Holiness of God. You ever read the epitaphs on gravestones? An epitaph is an inscription on a tombstone or a grave. If you ever walk through Center Ridge, there are some interesting inscriptions there, especially the biggest monument out there as far as the tallest is uh, Will Hayes. Um, if, if you're walking, you'll notice that. You stop and read those uh, epitaphs on his grave. There's one on each side on all four, as are these epitaphs as well from kind of some famous people. That's all, folks. Mel Blanc, Walt Disney, Man of a Thousand Voices, Rodney Dangerfield, there goes the neighborhood. Martin Luther King Jr., free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Sinatra, blue eyes, the best is yet to come. And for us in, who believe in Christ, believe that 100%. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped to the lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms, but the work shall not be lost, for it will be as he believed appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author. That's Ben Franklin. Thanks, Bill. You read through First and Second Kings, it's like walking through a royal graveyard. It's the stories of Israel's rulers, and they read like brief epitaphs etched in marble headstones. Until we come to King... Uzziah. Many of the kings served only a few years and some a few months, but Uzziah's rule reigned over Israel for 52 years. So he established his name in that nation as well. But he reigned so long that it was almost a danger for the people that they put him on a pedestal and, and uh, dethroned the true king, which was the Lord God. And maybe that's what happened with Isaiah the prophet, who had his eyes on Uzziah, maybe and not on God. So God brought him back to square one, if you will. And we read in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So when Isaiah saw himself in contrast to the unspeakable glory of God, he realized his true condition. And he says this in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's glory and his holiness is a transforming truth and a subject well worth our attention this morning. Here's kind of an understanding of holiness. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words for holy convey the idea of separateness. While Scripture says something is holy, it means it is set apart, that it's consecrated. In some churches, they, they have pieces of furniture, such as an altar or a communion table, that is consecrated. It's set apart for the Lord. Or uh, pastors and priests who preach in robes, that vestment, that clothing is set apart uh, for, for that as well. 
In reference to behavior, holiness means separation from all that is sinful, impure, and imperfect. It's one of God's essential characters, his characteristic. He is completely free of contamination. Although God offers us complete forgiveness, we can never experience the holiness of a complete, full, sinful, sinless life in this life because of our fallen condition. We always are reminded of that, and we know that within ourselves that we are flawed creatures. We can better understand God's feeling by imagine, imagine ourselves just caked with mud and with filthy clothes on and then walking into a, the steel sterility of a hospital operating room with bright wat, wattage lights that could spotlight our grimy face and there's no way to hide in that. It's the way God's glory shone on Isaiah's dirty soul. You know, I've always said this, and I believe this is true, that that's what it was like when people would meet Christ face to face. It wasn't like seeing an average human being, because this was God with skin on. And I believe that when his eyes looked into yours, that he didn't stop with your mind. He looked all the way through the heart to your soul, and he knew you, and you knew that he knew you. The realization of the importance of holiness is this, because of what it, what it reveals about God and how it affects us. This is what holiness reveals about our God. It assures us that he is trustworthy, that he is morally unable to take advantage of us, abuse us, or even manipulate us. Second, his holiness guarantees that he will deal honorably with us. We'll never have to wonder whether his plans will backfire or work against us. And then third, since he is holy, he is our model of perfection. He is without flaw, either hidden or exposed. And we imperfect humans, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around that concept. That something could be completely pure, that a being could be completely uh, without any flaw at all. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. This passage, there's a, a unique construction in the original text that highlights the intricate, infinite holiness of God. It's in the phrase, I am being tempted by God. This particular construction conveys the idea of indirect agency, namely that God is not even indirectly involved in the act of sin. How does holiness affect us? What if God reserved holiness only for himself, withholding that quality from us? If he did, we would not be able to fellowship with him. 1 John 1, 5 and 6. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. The word light is being used as a symbol of purity. God is absolutely pure with not one dark thought, not one stained motive, not one shady statement or act. It's impossible for light to coexist with darkness, for holiness to coexist with sin. But through his grace, God gives us the opportunity to overcome the darkness of our souls and walk in the light of his holiness. Verse 7, 1 John 5. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Without holiness, we would not only be separated from God, that we would live our entire lives in the stranglehold of sin, unable to free ourselves from its grip and its bondage. And ultimately, without holiness, we would never see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Here's a couple examples from Scripture. Holiness always suggests separateness. In the moral realm, it means being separated from immorality, for like oil and water, immorality and holiness don't mix. Here's a clip about God's holiness. To be holy or sacred means to be separate, different, or set apart. The mirror that we look into to see how holy we are is God's law, the Ten Commandments. Why don't we look at them? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image of anything and worship it. You shall not carry the name of God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not be unfaithful towards your spouse. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not be greedy and want what others have. This is what God is like. This is what separates him from us. God's law shows us how much we need Jesus. He took the punishment off his people for breaking these laws. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Since God alone is holy, let us seek holiness from him. Let our daily prayer be that God would sanctify us through and through that our whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, Leviticus 11.44, holds an ancient requirement for approaching our holy God. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate, yourse consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And then in the New Testament... Romans 6, 12, and 13 spells out the requirement. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Without Christ, we are slaves to the harsh taskmaster of sin, which this clip explains. The word sin appears almost 400 times in the Bible. What is sin exactly? The simplest answer is that sin is disobedience to God. Sin can be thought of as committing a spiritual crime. Most of us do not think of ourselves as criminals. We tend to think of crime in terms of murder, theft, arson, drunk driving, and so on. However, even those of us who have not committed any of these crimes are still spiritual criminals even if our worst offense is telling a lie. The Bible says that all people sin. Often we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are good people because we don't commit the worst kinds of sins. If we compare ourselves to each other, this might be a valid conclusion. In reality, it does no good to compare ourselves to one another because this is not the yardstick that God measures by. He does not grade on the curve. The prophet Isaiah said, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In the sight of God, even our good deeds are like something filthy because they are mingled with all the sins we have committed. Tragically, the whole world is full of sin. 
What makes something a sin? The Bible teaches that the basic concept of sin is the idea of missing the target. What target is it that God expects us to hit? To answer this, let's consider a question that was asked of Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said the greatest commandment is that we are to love God. The second is similar to it. We are to love one another. This is the target that God wants us to aim for. All of the commandments God has given us are based on love. God teaches us that if we love someone, we should always be trying to do what is in their best interest no matter who they are. We show our love by obeying all that He has taught us. If we instinctively knew how to love each other, God would not have needed to give us instructions. His commands, if obeyed, result in showing love to Him, ourselves, and to everyone else. His commands aren't meant to keep us from having fun, but rather they serve to teach and protect us. Obeying God is in our own best interest because the commands He has given are for our own good and the good of others. We show our love by obeying all that He has taught us to disobey us to sin. God's commandments are actually instructions which teach us how to be like Him. The more we become like Him, the more we put the well-being of others first. The more we do this, the less hurtful things we do to ourselves and others. Got it? Sin kills, <laughs> destroys, it hurts people. It makes us fear. We've talked a lot about that. I appreciate that scripture in the beginning as Steve had about uncertainty. There's certainty in Christ. But I'm certain of this, that when we are filled with fear, that sin is, is kind of pushing that along. And, and before long, what we do is we play the what-if game. And all this time, we who are followers of Christ, we kind of forget that the Holy Spirit's within us and he has our best interests at heart and it's always going to be okay for us even though we don't think of it at the time. What if? What if I get the virus? What if my spouse? What if my parents? What if my grandparents? What if my kids? What if it completely takes over the solvent school district system, the whole we can work ourselves in such a, a dither, if you will, that we have no peace. And, and that's what, one of the things that sin does, it robs us of hope, it also robs us of our peace. And I think that's why it, it's so important for understand the holiness of God and how he has imparted that in our lives to take care of some of the maladies that bother us every day. You know, we can make all the revolution, resolutions that we want, but we cannot keep from serving sin unless we have the power to overcome it, and that power is Jesus Christ. When we come to the cross, our slavery to sin is canceled, and we become a slave to God. Yet, sin continues to dwell in us. Not as a landlord, but as a tenant. When we invite Christ to be master of our hearts, the title is transferred from sin to the Savior. And likewise, the new owner of a fixer-upper, Christ sweeps our heart clean of any dirty deeds, dusty thoughts, and cobwebs of deceit. And though the old landlord continually tries to reclaim the property, and though we're often tempted to let him, we've been given the power 
to put him under lock and key. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul describes our hearts as temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7 describes the housekeeping chores that's delegated to you and I as caretakers of this temple. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God that you're set apart. This is the will of God that you've allowed the Holy Spirit to work in your life to make you more and more like Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that, you're, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. It means you know how to control your bodies. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in matters because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we are also t- told you before, I'm solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So Paul, Peter, ec- Peter echoes Paul's admonition with five active commands of 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. First, prepare your minds for action. Second, be self-controlled. Third, fix your hope completely on the grace of Jesus Christ. Fourth, do not be conformed to your former lusts. And fifth, in all you do, be holy as God is holy. Nowhere in this passage do we find the phrase, let go and let God. The only letting go that you and I are commanded to do is letting go of our former lusts. Throughout Scripture, the Christian life is described as a battle. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, you find the the, the armor of God that we are to put on every day of our life. Here's the concept behind that. God doesn't put that armor on us. We've got to pick it up. We've got to put on the helmet. We've got to put on the breastplate. We've got to put on the shoes. We've got to pick up the sword, which is the word of God. God doesn't just levitate that into our hand. We've got to pick it up. We're the ones that have to do it. We pick up that shield of faith as well. God doesn't pick it up for us and put it in our hands. We have to actually do some action behind it and do it. God indeed empowers us, but we fight the fight. You know, I, we talk about Apostle Paul a lot, and his body was all beat up and scarred up. And down at the end of his life, before he was about to be decapitated, <laughs> he said, I have finished the race. I have fought the fight. I have fought the fight. And then he says, I have kept the faith. I think a lot of times we, we assume so much and we put so much on God that we think he's going to do everything for us. He's already done what he's going to do in that sense by giving his life for us. But he expects us in, in, in life to fight this battle and we're the ones that have to do it. You know, there's nothing passive about soldiers in battle. We've all seen movies about combat, and some of you watching this has been in combat. You know that (laughs) there's no peace there until you win the battle. So in light of what we heard, if you want to stand unashamed in the light of God's holiness, there's three actions for us to do every day. First... We need to keep ourselves from conforming to former lusts. In other words, we need to stay out of the mud. 
We all have our own mud hole. We all know what that is, that we love it. We love to wallow in it. We love to smear it in our face. We love to eat it. We love to get it in our eyes and our ears. 1 Peter 1.14, remembering to claim God's power as we lock those things out of our lives. Second, we must remind ourselves of our calling. Who has called us is holy, and he has called us to share in that holiness, verses 15 and 16. And then thirdly, we need to conduct ourselves in fear, verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. This verse does not mean fear as, as we tremble in terror, but fear as in reverence, an awe-inspiring recognition of God's holiness and purity. We need to stand in awe of our great God. Let's watch. This morning, before we leave, we need to give ourselves a white glove test and take a hard look at ourselves. Have we been neglecting the dust when it comes to our own heart's holiness? Have we been indifferent about the cobwebs in the corners of our lives and the rugs of our hearts that have become lumpy from day after day and week after week, sweeping dirt under them? The Lord first entered our hearts when they were dusty and disheveled. And when he did, he condemned the tenement slums that stood there and consecrated them as holy temples. And it's time for us maybe to do some industrial cleaning within our own hearts. The message has brought to mind this great hymn, Holy, 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 written by a pastor, Reginald Heber. The words focus on God's holiness and allow us as we sing to express our adoration and love uh, to him. It should deepen our relationship to him as well. I've often struggled with holiness. I've had people at a pastor that I admire one time say, Will, you're a pretty good guy, but you're not very holy. I've tried to understand that. And as we've talked about God's holiness and how he wants us to be, it's, it's the more that we separate ourselves from the things of the world and how um, much more that uh, we allow Christ to, to shine through us. It's my desire for myself 
it's my desire for all of you that we're more and more conformed into the image of Christ. That people not think we're holier than thou, but we're filled with the love of Christ and they see Jesus in us and they want some of it. They want, they want some of him. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And <clears throat> holiness is kind of a misunderstand term sometimes and we're trying to grasp it. But we know you're holy and you want that for us. Not that it might make us look better than other people, but that it might fill us with love for other people as well. We love you, God. We give you praise and glory. Thank you for loving us. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.